0: Welcome to our very first episode of Inside My Favorite Manuscript, the podcast where we sit down and talk with people about their favorite manuscripts and why they love them. In today's episode, we talk to Allie Alvis about bookbinding, tattoos, cute little guys, and her two favorite manuscripts from the Hunterian Collection at the University of Glasgow. We are really, really thrilled today to have Ali Alves with us. Ali is currently a rare book cataloger and antiquarian book dealer at Type Punch Matrix. Before that, they worked at the Smithsonian Libraries, where I will always be thankful that they wrote this great blog post about why you shouldn't wear white gloves <laughs> that I share absolutely all the time because I am constantly getting messages from people asking why I don't wear white gloves in the videos that I share. Before the Smithsonian, they did master's degrees in information management at the University of Glasgow and book history at the University of Edinburgh. So they've been around the world and worked with a lot of great books. You might know them best as Book Historia on Twitter and Instagram. And are you on TikTok as well? I am, but I'm not that active, but YouTube- YouTube. Yes, of course, YouTube. Lots of videos on YouTube, lots of social media, great stuff with fun books, not only manuscripts, but lots of manuscripts. Uh, and I'm really thrilled because you're one of my favorite people. And I'm just really totally glad to have you here to talk with us about a couple of your favorite manuscripts.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to be here. Um, thank you for having me on your radio program. Um, and it is nice to be talking to you and Lindsay. Dot, I know a fair amount about you. We've been on a panel together. We're social media mutuals. We talk all the time. Um, but Lindsay, what, what's your background? I'm, I'm curious about the, the person behind the name.
2: <laughs> uh, well, I'm Lindsay, and I am a friend of Dot. We Yay. met each other online over a shared love of Star Wars. And we have made up lots of fun stories together, and we hang out. And Dot has been just a really cool person to know, and I have learned so much from her. And she invited me to be a part of this because she seems to think that I'm an interesting person who asks interesting questions. And I'm just basically a big old nerd. Yeah, she really is. I love learning. And what I think that you and Dot have like the coolest jobs on the face of the earth, and I'm just really excited to be just adjacent to that and get to participate. It's really fascinating. So thanks for having me.
0: Nice to meet you. Yeah, I'm really glad you're here. So Allie, what, what are you going to be showing us today? <laughs> Well,
1: um, when I was first talking to Dot about coming on this program, um, she said, you know, pick your favorite manuscript or group of manuscripts. And I heard group of manuscripts and my brain went, ah, yes, the entire Hunterian collection at the University of Glasgow, which I think is 650 manuscripts. It's a lot. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a pretty healthy collection Uh, came from the uh, anatomist uh, Hunter, Um, who had a huge collection of printed books and uh, manuscripts and also numismatics and all sorts of historical artifacts and stuff. He was just a voracious collector and he donated his book collection to the University of Glasgow and it came to the university in 1807. Mm -hmm. So it has been like this gem of the special collections, and I have gotten to work with it extensively in my second master's degree and my second thesis on the work of bookbinder Douglas Cockrell and Son. Since it's such an important collection, over the history of the library, they have been very interested in having it conserved and stabilized and made sure that people can use it so in the service of that, they, they worked very closely with this bookbinder, Douglas Cockrell and Son, mm. to rebind some of the titles, to stabilize them uh, and otherwise conserve and make them usable.
0: And that work, was that done in the 19th century or is that more recent than that?
1: Um, It's actually mid 20th century. Okay. So Douglas Cockrell and Son obviously started by a man named Douglas Cockrell. But at the point they were working with Glasgow was just Sidney Cockrell uh, and his workshop. They worked in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And I can't remember if they did anything in the 80s. They might have done a few things Mm -hmm. to conserve the books in a more... Sympathetic way than they generally had been in the past in the 1900s and before. Mm -hmm. um, With you know, the collectors in the past were very interested in making their books look beautiful, whether that meant trimming them down and binding them in stunning but ultimately unusable bindings that are really tight and hard to open or having the margins washed of all marginalia. So by the 20th century, thank God that has changed. So yeah, Sidney Cockrell was working in the, the 20th century. And so I was looking at a lot of books that were conserved by Cockrell in pursuit of my thesis. And in doing that, I called up a lot of the Hunterian collection. So I got to see not only a lot of the Really amazing ontarian manuscripts, but some of the early printed works from that collection, some of the Arabic and Persian works, because uh, Sidney Cockrell just kind of worked on anything that they sent him. So it's it's a really diverse, multifaceted collection of of really wonderful things that I have managed to narrow down to two. <laughs> to two. <laughs> uh. That's great.
0: So which two? Which two? I'm
1: really excited. Okay, so I kind of wanted to show the broadness of the collection. So I have chosen the Hunterian Psalter, which is like one of the ultimate treasures of the University of Glasgow, and a more humble manuscript, Lydgate's Life of Our Lady, which has been doodled in and scribbled upon and cut up and notes taken in the margins, and it's it's a well-loved personality manuscript that just anytime you look at it, it kind of makes you happy. I love the contrast between these two because they're both, you know, technically medieval manuscripts. And when you say Mm -hmm. something like medieval manuscript, it, it immediately calls to mind this illumination and beautiful calligraphy and wonderful high quality parchment and all of these, these preconceived notions um, and then you look at this, this copy of Lydgate and it's like, oh, huh. <laughs> <laughs> but like in a good way, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to come into contact with this manuscript sort of further down the road of my experiences with medieval books. Because I think if this was the first manuscript I ever saw, I'd be like, oh, huh,
0: really? <laughs> Why are people interested in this? Yeah. Books? Yeah. I love messy books. So yes. I am. Um... So I'm excited to learn more about about this one.
1: The Hunterian Psalter I got to look at as part of my study of Douglas Cockrell and son, um, because it was conserved by Nicholas Pickwode in the '80s. That's right. Um, and he was the student of the the sort of Cockrell School of Conservation. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of an mm-hmm. exercise in tracing their methods through the years. And it's it's fascinating. When I was looking in the uh, Cockrell archive of correspondence with the University of Glasgow, the librarian in 1981 actually contacted Sidney Cockrell to say, can you conserve the Hunterian Psalter? It's in this really yucky 17th century gold tool binding, and it's mm-hmm. falling apart. And Sidney gave some advice. He said, uh, it should be rebound in order to improve the opening, interleaved with blank paper, and he wanted the librarian to have it sent to his workshop. But that never happened, and it's not clear why. But in 1983, Nicholas Pickwode was selected to conserve the book. But Pickwode did incorporate a lot of this advice that Sidney gave. So it it's clear that the, the cockerel tradition was Alive and well in Nicholas Pickwood, and I'm sure still is. He's he's a really incredible binding historian. Um, yeah, he's still
0: a- he's still active. He
1: today. is. Yeah, yeah.
0: He's like one of the greats
2: hmm
1: But if I
0: keep going on about this, I will just talk about the bindings. Okay. So um, let's take so- a look at some <laughs> let's take a look at some pictures because you've yeah. got a lot of pictures to show us. I and do. we'll be we'll be sharing these pictures in the show notes as well. So we'll be describing them and talking about them. And if you want to see them, you can go find the links and have a look too.
1: Yes. I was lucky enough to actually see the Hunterian Psalter as part of my my research. And it was quite a production in terms of actually getting to access the Psalter. They wheeled it out on its own cart and it was in its own special box. And it was sort of revealed to me like like this treasure chest. Uh And it just it felt really special in a way that I, I haven't often felt with looking at manuscripts. So right off the bat it was it was an experience. This is the uh the first page of the calendar. So it opens with this really nice beautiful illuminated calendar showing the labors of the month and also the zodiac
0: sign. Which is which? Cuz there is a there's sort of a square illumination at the top with a few things in it and then there's a circle sort of in the in the middle of mm-hmm. the page.
1: So um, the square at the top is actually a super stylized letter K and letter L. Oh. Um, yeah, which is hard to see because in the yeah. past, like we were talking about, uh, these not great rebinding practices, it's been trimmed off quite severely at the top. Mm-hmm. So you're losing a lot of information. It's a bit more clear in other calendar pages, but it's KL for Callens and within that kl you can see uh, a little man i'm not sure what the labor of the month for january is actually um but it's a little man doing something he might be measuring sugar or salt or something i'm gonna look Um, it up on my
0: phone real fast just yeah feasting exchanging Uh, gifts on new years so he is feasting
1: yeah because i think this is the bread sort of at his elbow
0: And is that cheese? Is he a gold cheese under his hand? Yeah,
1: and he's holding a cup or something. Yeah. But in a lot of calendars that open Psalter's or Books of Hours, which are sort of the later version of psalter. Um, You get these nice calendar pages that open them and the labors of the month are basically like what you should be doing that month. And it ranges from feasting to feeding your hogs to making wine. So it's it's this wonderful sort of glimpse into everyday life of the medieval period or at least what upper class people thought everyday life was like
0: (laughs) was like for other people yeah maybe except for the feasting I think they probably yeah (laughs) yeah and I want to step in for a second just explain if people don't know what a calendar is that a calendar it's not like a modern calendar it's like a list that goes down the page for every day and the system of 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 numbering the days is different it begins with KL for calends Mm -hmm. so you've got the, the calends and the ides and you number around these other days. And essentially what it's for is for listing out what saints you venerate on which days and when there are holidays, when there are like holy days. So it's, I've heard it described as a the map of the church year. So if you look at, if you click on this in the show notes, you'll see that it looks very different from like the modern calendar, but it looks very much like a medieval calendar, which is what this is.
1: So. Mm-hmm. And funny little tidbit is, um, if you've heard of red letter days, this is where you get that that expression from. Um, the red letter days were theoretically more important feast days or saints days mm-hmm. than other normal saints days. Um, I'm sure it does vary from calendar to calendar what gets the red. Mm-hmm. But in general, that's that's where you get that expression, which I think is super
0: cool. It's very cool. I always wondered about that. Yep. That's where it comes from. And this one has black which is sort of everyday but there's also green and I see a blue Mm -hmm. which isn't normal like oftentimes it's just like red and black and but Mm -hmm. this one has lots of color
1: yeah yeah something about this manuscript uh which I mean you can see when you look at the pictures of it it is beautiful in a way that few manuscripts are So nobody really knows who this manuscript was executed for, Mm -hmm. but they think it was created around 1170, likely in the north of England, for someone extremely wealthy. So there's a lot in this manuscript that you don't really get anywhere else. And some of that is these really over the top calendar pages with all of the the different colors and these really stunning illuminations.
0: I'm looking at the gold. So this is a close up of one of these KL. It's a different page than the other one. But what's happening with the gold? There's something happening there.
1: Yeah, so it's not just gold leaf. Well, it is it is gold leaf, but it's not just gold leaf. So when you see an illuminated manuscript, one of the things you really like, kind of expect to see is this sparkling gold leaf. And for some people, that really defines the illuminated manuscript is, is this use of gold, because it really sparkles in candlelight and sunlight. But this is not just flat gold. This is tooled gold leaf. And there are actually lots of amazing little incised designs in this field of gold. In this particular uh, calendar page, you have sort of little spirals and acanthus leaves. And this is actually the first time this technique was used, at least recorded as being used uh, in England. So it's it's a really amazing book. And this effect appears throughout. Uh, It really gives this dynamic sense to it that you know it's it's not just a field of sparkling gold it's it's a texture Mm -hmm. um and it's just it's really amazing when i was looking at the hunterian psalter i took pictures of pretty much every page (laughs)
2: Mm
1: -hmm. so there are just a lot of
0: pictures um, yeah it's hard not to and i think there's something there's something interesting like not every page has those large illuminations but there's something like there are smaller initials and the writing like when we get into the text and look at the writing it's like like just the writing is gorgeous
1: Mm -hmm. so here are some larger illuminations and this these come after the calendar pages and it's it's sort of like this introduction to the text and you can really see this textured gold in the background of these illuminations of Adam being created and then the temptation of Adam and Eve. It's these two massive illuminations that take up most of the page. And there's actually no writing around them uh, other than later marginalia. So it's, it's not until after these gigantic pictures that you get to the actual text But I really like the the fact that you kind of open with this visual contemplation of the stories of the Bible, and then you actually get into the text. It just, I don't know. I like that. Mm -hmm. In a reading room, you don't often say, like, can you take a picture of me with this manuscript? Oh. But But when you're with the Hunterian Psalter, you got to do what you got to do. You want to have proof. Yes. So this is me, I think, in 2016, absolutely beaming in front of one of the
0: very large illuminations of the Hunterian Psalter. This is good, though, because you can see how big it is. And it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not huge. Like, it's not small. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, it fits comfortably in front of you. But it's not like overwhelmingly big. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting, because when you look at the close up, of the images maybe it feels like they're bigger than they actually are Mm because you sort of zoom in Mm -hmm. so i like that so here we have one
1: of the first openings of text and you can see how sort of almost soft the vellum looks and dot you can you can definitely speak to this like this is
0: high quality vellum um it's very high quality. It's very smooth and very creamy. like the color is very cream and except right on the edges, more at the bottom and a little bit on the top, where you can tell that people have touched it and there's some there's a little bit of dirt. It's mostly very clean
1: um and you can see that um it's it's sort of an unusual uh, mise en page sort of page layout um for A lot of illuminated manuscripts, at least that I've seen, are a little bit later in the Middle Ages. And they just look different. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this, it's very almost minimalist. There's a lot of room in the margins. There's not a lot of that floral, spiky, ivy leaf marginal decoration. It's just blank white margins, except for that little bit of soil. Mm -hmm. Um, And these really gorgeous gilt letters um, at the beginning of each sort of phrase.
0: So the phrases are written in black and they span like I said, the first one is just a couple lines and then the next one is three lines but each phrase begins with these gold larger initials and then there's a couple that are much bigger and more decorative
1: yeah um, so these larger um, decorative initials they sort of vary from just full of plants and flowers to um, what we call historiated, which um, there's there's an actual sort of narrative going on in them. But these two on this opening are just gorgeous acanthus leaves in shades of pink and blue and green. And there's not much of that texturing in this gold here. There's like a little bit of like single line ruling to, to give it a little bit of, of textural interest. Um, but it's not as gonzo as the, um, the (laughs) calendar and the, um, full page illuminations.
0: Do you know if, if one artist was responsible for all of the artwork or if it was multiple?
1: I think the jury's kind of out on that. Um, there's everything from, it was the work of a single master working from different exemplars. And that explains why there are sort of differing styles. Um, to it was the work of a master overseeing a variety of apprentices, Mm -hmm. to it was a single monk, which I think I'm not terribly on board with that, to it was actually professionals, perhaps itinerant professionals, um, who came through and did this incredible high quality work and sort of moved on to the next city where they could get um, artistic work. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's this sort of mystery which is amazing it's the same scribe throughout except for the later editions at the very end the text itself is very uniform very beautiful
2: oh my goodness yeah so
1: this is another page of text but with a much larger initial Um, this is one of those historiated initials of there's actually a scene going on here Um, a, a man is being crowned by a white bearded Individual and it's just very colorful. I am. Um, I can't remember
2: what what biblical scene this is. Um, it almost looks like Samuel crowning David. That seems likely. And I think so. There's a crown, and he also
0: has. It looks like maybe he's anointing him with oil. He's
2: being anointed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I think you're probably right.
1: But you can see again this sort of um, floral extender that comes off of the top of this letter. And at the
0: very top of it's been cut off. <laughs> it's been which, trimmed. It's like <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh. Very sad. Oh, so who is this? Is this an is this an initial?
1: Uh no, this is just a little guy. So oh. yeah. So throughout the manuscript, there are a few just little guys that are in the margins, not quite the level of the grotesques that you get in the the later Middle Ages of you know, the the weird hybrid creatures and the guys with trumpets coming out of their butts and snails fighting knights right. and that sort of thing. I was going to say, thing. the
0: knights and the snails. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he's standing sort of at the bottom of the text and he's got his sword in one hand and then his shield down by his side. it has got a gold lion on a blue background and he's wearing, out of the bottom of his... Cause he's wearing this chain mail that has like red crisscrosses on it, but coming out of the bottom, it looks like a white nightgown. I'm sure it's not a nightgown. But well, like a, white. a nightgown K oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> oh,
1: I didn't even do okay, that on purpose and you ran with
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's, but then he's, so he's got this white fabric coming out and then he's got these little red booties with pointy toes and he's standing on a little green dragon that has like red pink and pink and blue wings and he's got a little smile. The dragon has a little smile on there. I know,
1: this is like the world's cutest knight. I, I don't know. He's cute. <laughs> and there's the little dragon. Yeah, but this is, um, it's possibly a clue to the person who commissioned the manuscript. There's a theory that uh, he was a crusader who was a very wealthy man, a noble, and this little guy is obviously a crusader, and the lion on his shield later became the crest of the family who they think may have commissioned this, so... It's it's another sort of question mark, but I just love the depiction of this knight in his little scale armor and his little nose protector. I just
0: think that's adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and his yeah. little rosy cheeks. Oh, he does have rosy cheeks. They're like peeking out from under because his face is all covered with this. He's got chain mail and then he's got this gold helmet with the nose protector. And you see just his eyes and his little rosy cheeks. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's hot. He's hot under yeah. all of that.
1: <laughs> but you can see there's a little bit of raking light that i accidentally got but thank goodness i did That's um that you can see that there's a bit of shininess to it um and there's also that textural incising mm-hmm. on the silver to make it look like that sort of fish scale chain mail not yeah. fish scale mail
0: i don't know I'm i'm not a military historian no but um, it does look like fish it does look like fish scale Mm-hmm. And there's also it looks like there's something written on the blade of the yeah there's like a, a cross
1: uh-huh and an S and an S
0: yeah so
1: I'm not sure if that's like ichthus or something like that or Christus mm-hmm. but unfortunately I don't think it's his name or anything that would no. that would be too easy I like him he's just a cute little guy could he be a reference to Saint George and the dragon that is also a possibility. um So much of this manuscript is like, well, we think it's this and it very well might be St. George and the Dragon. So it's not just saints and possible rich men who commission these things and Bible stories, um, but also these occasional sort of comedic vignettes of people doing stuff. So this is a historiated initial of sorts of a hunter with a bow and arrow standing with a friend who's sort of reaching out to him and pointing upwards. Meanwhile, the guy with the bow and arrow is just sort of pointing over his friend's head and apparently not seeing the squirrel who is perched on the top of this initial happily eating a nut off of a a sort of floral decoration. And then there are a couple other, um, like there's a mermaid looking at her reflection in a mirror Mm-hmm. Um, which is often symbolic of vanity. So it's not quite so surprising to see something like that, but it is really cool. There are just, there's so many initials and so much going on in this manuscript that, you know, you could really do a whole podcast about just the Hunterian Psalter with multiple mm-hmm. episodes about how freaking cool it is.
0: That would be fun to do actually.
1: Yeah. Hunterian podcast.
0: Yeah. Somebody should do that. Psaltercast.
1: <laughs> but at the very back of this manuscript, um, the final page, uh, I mentioned earlier that as you get sort of through the manuscript, um, at the end, there are a few added pages of later stuff done by someone else. But the very, very, very last page has a very interesting element to it. And it looks unremarkable when you compare it to the luxury and splendor of the Hunterian Psalter. It's this sort of browned parchment. It's a different quality than everything else. It's Mm -hmm. very spotty and dirty and portions have been sort of scratched out. And there's later writing on it of various things, but there is a particularly interesting little tiny little inscription up at the very top left corner that is a charm against epilepsy Oh, and the the writing itself is in latin but um it says you know this is a charm against epilepsy write it down and and do this with it but the charm itself is in some sort of a strange somewhat mysterious thing of old english gone through a, a mangle and come out <laughs> to hear
0: so this so i like i mean i like the rest of the of the Psalter. But I, I like this page a lot. Because as you as you say, it's got like several sections, there's like a square, there's the charm up in the left. And then there's a little more down below, also written in the margin that looks like it might be in the same hand. But I don't know. Yeah, it, it,
1: I the, think it is. But I, yeah, I'm not sure what it says. I just know that a lot has mm-hmm. been written
0: about the, the epilepsy charm. So the epilepsy charm. Yeah. And then it has two larger sections. And then as you say, like there's a section in the middle that part of it has been sort of scratched away, like they were trying to erase it, but only mm-hmm. the first part of it.
1: Yeah. Um, and that section is in more of a, a casual sort of secretary looking hand, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the um, the other two central sections, which look more um, scribal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they look like they're prayers because they end with Amen. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, so yeah, the this top prayer, um, I'm not sure about the bottom prayer, um, but the top prayer initially had feminine singular endings, and then it was changed to masculine singular, and then it was changed mm-hmm. to masculine plural. So I don't know why that happened, but it's interesting.
0: <laughs> that would imply that it was first written for a woman to recite on her own, mm-hmm. and then it was changed so a man would recite it, and then for a group of men, like maybe... A monastery, maybe like a monastic. Oh, yeah, I mean, like so much of this manuscript, it's I don't know. <laughs> it's like mysterious. Yeah, but it's very cool. Yeah.
2: What do you think, Lindsay? I think it's just terribly fascinating. Mm-hmm. I've seen many images of manuscripts, but I think the writing in that is the most legible <laughs> mm-hmm. I've seen so far.
0: Yeah, it is very legible mm. and clear. Like the scribe was really interested in,
2: really wanted somebody
1: to be able to read it. And it's really good contrast between the the really pitch blackness of that ink and the, the milky, creamy parchment color uh, in a way that sometimes you don't get because parchment may have sort of toned over the years or if the ink has browned. Um, there, there are lots of reasons why manuscripts don't look so good anymore, but I think the the quality of materials used in the Huntarian Psalter means that it just looks good still even mm-hmm. okay 11th century 900, almost a thousand years ago it was created so gorgeous.
0: Mm. right And the next one is also gorgeous but yes in a and its own way. Wonderful way. <laughs> so so tell us a little bit about about this manuscript. Lidgate wasn't the scribe. It's like a copy. No, it. yeah. It,
1: yeah, it's a copy okay. of Lydgate. It was copied in the, the 15th century. They're not really sure exactly when. It is MS Hunter 232 or U.3.5. So it's, it's another part of the Hunterian collection. And it was also conserved by Douglas Cockrell and Son. Which is not quite as obvious in this example as it was with the Hunterian Psalter, which uh, the Hunterian Psalter was fully rebound. Um, it was in this sort of beautiful uh, white pigskin binding, but this Lydgate has its original boards, which is great. So, yeah, so the original um, front and back covers were preserved by Douglas Cockrell and Son, and it was just sort of rebacked. Um, Mm -hmm. So the spine was reinforced. So this is a good example of what's going on in this book, which is a lot. (laughs) It's in contrast to the the beautiful Hunterian Psalter. This is a page with sort of justified left calligraphy writing of passages from Lydgate's Life of Our Lady. Um, It's in, it's not middle English. It's sort of early modern English. Um, And you can read it if you try hard enough. But the hand is not nearly as clear as the Hunterian Psalter. And then all around it are letters and doodles of of squiggly lines and smears. And something's been cut out of the bottom. And it's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. (laughs) So here's a better picture of the little cutout. You can see that, like it's a lot of stuff. Yeah, there's so much going on here. The cutout was actually one of these. Um, I can't remember what the term for this sort of design is. It's not apotropaic. It might be apotropaic. I don't know. But it's like this sort of charm type of of design that um, you sometimes see in medieval graffiti, sort of carved into church walls and stuff like that. It doesn't really mean much. It's just a cool design kind of like that weird S that you used to draw in like middle school and high school. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And someone was so proud of their funny little squiggle design that they actually cut it out of the manuscript. So there is a shaped hole in the bottom of this medieval page, which is horrifying. If you think of it in, in a sort of object preservation (laughs) way, but right. uh, it, but it's sort of charming yeah, in a
0: in a sort of historical way. Yeah,
1: exactly. So. Yeah, it's evidence of use. It's evidence mm-hmm. of um, the sort of attitude that people had to these things in the past. Of you know, this was not a, a cultural treasure of great import. Um, it was probably an you know. expensive book that people studied, and I'm sure they wanted to keep it relatively nice. But it wasn't this this sort of emblem of I don't know Western civilization. That's people sometimes think of illuminated manuscripts as it was just
0: an expensive book. So mm. yeah, here we are. <laughs> yeah. So who was who was making these doodles and I, maybe pen trials, mm-hmm. like they were just trying it out? And the yeah, there's more of those little charm charm doodles. Mm-hmm. Kids, this is kids in the early kids. modern era
1: who got a hold of this book. It's either oh the, the older generation was done with it. It was out of date for some reason. They had a better copy, who knows? But it's likely that the children would have been studying this text in pursuit of knowledge or devotion. The Life of Our Lady is like a, a Christian poem copied sort of heavily throughout the, the Middle Ages and even into the early modern period. And this was produced in 14-something so we're we're kind of headed out of the Middle Ages into the early modern period but before mm-hmm. the movable type really became a, a feasible technology in the west for book production. So this is it's it's sort of on that cusp of uh cultural change of hand writing books and before movable type printing. Um mm-hmm. so Who knows, maybe in 1460, the adults got a printed version of Lydgate's Life of Our Lady and said, well, who needs this manuscript anymore? The kids can study with it. Uh, And uh, (laughs) I'm sure they did some studying, but they also did a lot of doodling. So this is the the bottom of one (laughs) of the pages with some dogs, we think some of them have like little collars and little chains and leashes oh i see that um, yeah. one
0: of them's pooping <laughs> it does look like it's pooping yeah. doesn't it yeah
1: so children children are the same
0: <laughs> yeah yeah. And then there's one, it's looked like they started, but they weren't, yeah. maybe they weren't happy with it. So it's, it looks like a little sausage with yeah, ears. Yeah, it's a
1: dog torso.
0: <laughs> no legs, poor thing. And then some sort of <laughs>
1: weird beast that's between the dog torso and the finished dogs that has like funny multi-toed feet and like antennae almost. And who knows what that is. Maybe it's a
0: like a grasshopper. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. A very large grasshopper. Uh-huh.
1: So it's, there's just, there is a lot happening in this manuscript and there's also like proper marginalia of people, I think, actually writing and saying, you know, this is, this is something to remember this. I'm taking notes on this text, but it's very much overshadowed by uh, pen trials and all of these doodles and Mm -hmm. pen trial is sort of a, a general term for this was back in the day when people used quill pens so when you used a, a quill like a feather quill, if you had a, a, if you used it enough, it got a little bit blunted, and so periodically you had to sort of trim it with a knife back to a sharp point. And pen trials are checking that the the pen is sharp enough, basically after you've trimmed it, or to to sort of get a, a ink chunk out. Um, it's basically the the equivalent of scribbling on a sticky note with your ballpoint pen when it gets kind of clogged up to make the ink flow. But pen trials take the form of alphabets a lot, all sorts of weird things and clearly some exciting things. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah, here's here's a great example Ooh. of just L L L L L L L L L L L L L Lots of letter L's. Then some C's, L's. Uh, then a bunch of D's, and, and D's. it's just, at this point, I don't think it's a pen trial. I think it's just having fun.
0: Having fun to writing writing letters. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah.
1: We, we look at this sort of thing today and go like, oh my gosh, this is such an excellent example of manuscript use and the practice of note taking and doodling and pen trials and preservation of all this sort of thing. But when this manuscript was initially cataloged, probably in the 19th century, and this is preserved in the University of Glasgow catalog, it says, after, you know, vellum, it's it's measures this by this in single columns, ruled and marginated in red, signatures and catchwords, blah, blah, blah. Vilely abused, cut, mutilated and <laughs> scribbled over. <laughs> oh, that's so great. I love that. because oh. like, even that catalog description is an example of interpretation of, of manuscripts and
0: mm-hmm.
1: valuing of different kinds of information. Because like classically in the 19th century and even in the 20th century and before, obviously, people were concerned with the, the textual information that you could get from manuscripts, mm-hmm. the art historical information, and often not so much with the actual use of that was that was mm-hmm. a sort of secondary or even tertiary interest of the the beauty of these amazing religious objects. So today obviously we we love this sort of thing.
0: Yeah. I mean this is why we're looking at this book. Like if if this book didn't have all of this stuff in the margin, I don't think we'd be talking about it today mm-hmm. like us today. Yeah. You know, because that's what makes it interesting is is looking at like thinking about, or for me, you know, thinking about kids had their hands mm-hmm. on this and other people, you know, other people, but in this case, children. And that's really neat yeah. that, that that happened, that that was a part of the use. Oh, look <laughs> at that. So she's just pulled up another one. This is this is another little marginal image and it looks like a little animal. It's like a little hairy a-
1: man. And I think this is my favorite guy in the manuscript. He's actually made out of an ink blot.
0: Oh, an ink blot. So you can see his
1: little like torso is just a blot of ink that probably fell off of a quill or who knows what happened. But somebody said, oh, I can do something with this. And they put this little head with sort of little dog ears or something on it with a mane and then little pointy fingers and feet and little pointy toes. And he just he kind of looks like Peter. Which is that 19th century German <laughs> "Be good, kids, or you know you'll die." Um, that weird, oh, no. <laughs> that weird 19th century moralistic children's story. But a few hundred years earlier,
0: there he is. I love him, and he's t- he's just tiny. Yeah, he's so he's weak. like three lines tall. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I know. I I like that the lines are there because you can say like, oh, he is one, two, three, four lines tall. That's just him. Four lines tall. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah are these on every page or like every, like how, how many pages? Cause we've seen a few pages that have a lot of mm-hmm. them, but does every page have a lot of them or are they sort of distributed through the book?
1: It's not every single page, but it is a lot of pages. Mm-hmm. They are highly concentrated on some pages, but I'd say like really? two thirds of the book or so has doodles wow. in it. And that mm-hmm. ranges from like this that we're looking at now, this weird winged, dog or something (laughs) has a long tail maybe it's a peacock (laughs) to um just like single letters and simple pen trials um but like here's this is a good example here's another sort of very light scribbles where it's clear Mm -hmm. that the pen was not working properly this was you know the death of your ballpoint pen and trying to Mm -hmm. see like can we revive it (laughs) can we make this work a little bit longer but it's, it's these sort of desperate scribbles and lines of like, please start working again. Um, yeah,
0: and they're just very, very uh-huh. light. You can see, I can actually, I can read the frustration uh-huh. in those loop, 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 yeah. loop. Come on, come on, I've done that. Yeah, I've done definitely. That. People in the 16th century, they're just like Yeah, guys. exactly. <laughs> they get frustrated when their pen doesn't uh-huh. work. Yeah, is, is there any idea or sense of how many different hands we're talking about not really is there any way to tell um i think if you studied hard enough you might be able to
1: sort of unpick if there was more than one child at work here if you did like an analysis of the ink maybe you would be able to see if it was um different recipes or or different carbon decomposition or whatever but stylistically it's it's kind of hard to tell because obviously you have the hand that wrote the book. And I'm not sure if that was um, one scribe or several scribes. Even in, when it was produced, it was kind of a workaday manuscript. There's no illumination in it. I think it like has some rubrication at the beginning. Um, so some little mm-hmm. red and blue decorative initials. But by and large, it's just written. So mm-hmm. there were these huge empty margins, which people took great advantage of. And some of these doodles yeah. just get really complicated. Like this one that it's like a whirlpool almost of intersecting squares that bloom out into these like swirling petals. And it's just, it's hypnotic. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this is um, the, this is, this will be the end of that manuscript. This is the Douglas Cockrell and son binder's note which like, like I said, this was the focus of my, my research, but you know, if I'm looking at a manuscript, I might as well look at the whole manuscript Mm -hmm. and something wonderful about Douglas Cockrell and son is that they did include these binders notes in the, the books that they conserved um, which recorded the uh, Mm -hmm. condition of the book when they received it um, and exactly what they did to treat the book because like one of the tenets of uh, modern book conservation is A, reversibility, and B, a a clear idea of exactly what was done. There's a difference between conservation and restoration. You don't want the book necessarily to look brand new anymore. You want the book to be usable as a research object, at least when it's in a special collections library. All bets are off when it comes to private owners. But at at least in this period, you know, this was this was a great record of information in a time when very few conservators were doing this sort of thing. Douglas Cockrell and son and Sidney Cockrell trained a lot of bookbinders, such as Nicholas Pickwood's teacher. And so their ways of recording information Um, and and doing things really sort of disseminated throughout the field and it was really a good model for record keeping of conservation work that thankfully really caught on and now it is the standard for conservation work is is making notes of what exactly
0: you did yeah and this the note is dated 1952 Mm -hmm. so in March 1952 and yeah as you say there's a paragraph that says condition when received and it describes, I won't read it all, but it like describes everything. At the end, vellum of manuscript is in good condition, though badly scribbled <laughs> on a numbers of cuts and tears in the leaves. And then the second paragraph describes what they did to, you know, what, what kind of repairs they made to it, which I, th- I expect if you sat down with the book and compared it with that paragraph, you'd be able to see all of those things. Mm. I mean, I guess you did probably (laughs) do that work as as part of your thesis.
1: Yeah. It's, it's very interesting because if this book were conserved by either anyone else or a little earlier, I would have expected the conservator to patch those holes. Like I Mm. would think that they would add in new vellum or paper or something like that to close those holes because that was just best practice then. But Sidney Cockrell left the holes open, which I think is yeah. great and is such a good source of information. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I don't go this deep into material stuff, but I'm sure if you examined the edges of the holes under a microscope, you could probably get good information about maybe the tool that was used to cut them. I mean, even the fact that they look a little bit messy is is indicative of who did the cutting that this was not like someone who wanted to take this doodle out and preserve it for, for art historical purposes. Like it just, it looks like a kid who was proud of this doodle and said like, I want to keep this one.
0: Give me the knife yeah. <laughs> or the razor. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Those are
1: my two favorites out of the, the Hunterian collection. I have, like I said, at the beginning, I, I initially wanted to bring the whole shebang and I had a, a third one that I was thinking about bringing, but I just I felt that the the contrast between these two was really
2: great. It's really interesting to see the contrast between these two books, and I sort of think of them in different terms. Like the Psalter is unquestionably beautiful and just astonishingly well crafted and put together, but the second book is more alive somehow. Mm-hmm and i don't know for all of the guilt and beautiful paintings the second book is just so much more fun Mm -hmm. gives you a much better sense of the hands that held it and to me that's just very different kind of experience than looking at something that is ooed and awed over by every scholar in the world for how Mm. well it's crafted that's also
1: i mean aside from it's gorgeous but that's one of the things that really drew me to the Hunterian Psalter, too, is, like I said, the, the conservation history, that it's not just a gorgeous thing. It's a gorgeous thing that has been interpreted physically in a certain way for a certain purpose to better allow people to ooh and awe over it. And that itself is evidence of book historical practices and attitudes towards books that to look at it from that angle, I I feel like gives it more personality. I mean, I'm, I do some art history, I dabble, but I'm not an art historian. So I'm not coming at it from like, this is a beautiful Mm -hmm. example of the Romanesque draping of fabric, (laughs) which like, again, it is. But I think because my initial view of the thing is like, this has a really dope binding on it. <laughs> um, it, it. It colors my perception of the thing in a way that I, I feel is is not something that uh, a lot of scholarship has really hit on. And, and Lindsay, like you said, like that human intervention really gives the thing a lot of personality, and it's very explicit in the the Lydgate life of Our Lady, how much human hands have dealt with this thing for good and for ill that it it just gives Mm -hmm. it a lot of life.
0: So you came at the Psalter looking at the binding. I'm still thinking about that last page, which is the one page where other hands have added things. But even in a couple of the photos that we looked at, there were things, I guess I'm thinking of the Adam and Eve. There were labels that were added later, and you even mentioned them. And so there have been little things. You know, we don't focus on them because the rest of the manuscript is so as you say, Lindsay, like, so like, ooh and ah, whereas the Lydgate manuscript, you know, it's fine. <laughs> no offense to my friends who study Lydgate and love this manuscript, because it's this amazing, great copy of this, of this Lydgate text. But, you know, because the text is so sort of everyday, and the marginal stuff is so unusual, it's really easy to focus on that. But as I found, like, I've looked through a lot of manuscripts, and Almost every manuscript has some evidence of other hands. It's just a matter of noticing it. Mm. You know, and it and it does, I think, depend on where you where you're coming from. Like, you know, if you're an art historian, maybe I don't wanna maybe I'll even delete this. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to just really like, through it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have I'm gonna have, you know what, I'm gonna have an art historian on <laughs> and it's gonna be fine. So we'll do that. <laughs> That's, and that's one of the great things, actually, about manuscript studies, is that we do come from lots of different points of views. Lindsay, if you have any other
1: questions,
2: because I, I feel like I kind of ran through that pretty hard. I do have some other questions, and you've probably heard this a lot, but I've never heard your answer. How did you come to be doing what you yeah, do? Yeah, so... It, it, it's funny.
1: I did say like, well, I'm not an English historian or historian of English language, but my undergrad is in linguistics. <laughs> and I was okay. interested in the historical development of the English language. And through that, I, I sort of became familiar with these original documents and um, primary sources. But I was at school in Kansas and there's not really a lot of early English, middle English, old English Primary source documents in Kansas. So, like, mm-hmm. I was aware of this this larger world of like, I know you can look at these things. I'm not really sure where you can look at these things, but they're around, right? And so, when I graduated, I thought maybe publishing, maybe I'll I'll get into publishing because I've always been bookish. I'm I haven't been a huge reader for a long time. I read a lot of nonfiction. I don't read a lot of fiction anymore, which is unfortunate. But I thought, you know, oh, maybe I'll get into publishing. That sounds interesting. Um, and I started looking at postgraduate programs in the UK and among the the publishing programs, I found this thing at the University of Edinburgh called Material Culture and the History of the Book. And I thought, oh, what is that? <laughs> and I read up on it a little bit and I, I applied because it sounded really interesting um, and I got in. And I had never been in a special collections reading room until I was literally in a program to do special collections. So (laughs) it it wasn't one of those things where like, I always wanted to be a special collections professional. It was, I stumbled into a thing that I thought looked cool and stayed there because it's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a selfie of myself with the first illuminated manuscript I ever looked at. And I, I think that's very emblematic of how I, Um, I enjoy manuscripts is, like, I I really enjoy them. And I I think, like, some of academia, especially in the past, um, has placed a lot of emphasis on logical study of these things. And, you know, like, it was written this way by this person, and it's this style because that's the way things were back then. But even in the Middle Ages, like, these things elicited a, a very emotional response from people. That's what they were designed to do. Um, And I know that there are uh, historians working on the history of emotion now, and um, hopefully they'll they'll get to illuminated manuscripts and, and write some really great stuff about that. But Lindsay, like you said, like there's so much personality here and to not appreciate that personality in favor of like some sort of false sense of academic detachment i i think is a an unfortunate eliding of a of, of fascinating sort of degree or way of um, looking at these things and understanding them because like i would not have gotten into this field if i didn't think it was cool as hell like <laughs> like mm-hmm. if it was boring i wouldn't have done mm-hmm. it and this is just what tickles me. Everybody else has has their own thing. But, you know, this is my jam. And that, that's why I did everything I could to to stay in this world, which, you know, it, it's difficult to find jobs in special collections librarianship as an academic book historian. Um, and even in rare book dealing, like they're, they're just not a lot of jobs on the ground. So you just kind of have to make sacrifices and work for what your goals are, but also be aware of your own limits. You know, you can only push so mm-hmm. hard. And I'm, I'm getting into more of a discussion of uh, rare book careers, uh, which which is always a, a kind of thorny <laughs> and
2: ongoing topic. But that that's my little story. Okay, well, thank mm-hmm. you for sharing that. One of the things that me as a lay person finds i'm always surprised when i ask dot the question well what does that say and she's like i don't know what it says <laughs> do you do, do you read and translate the manuscripts i very much with?
1: sympathize with dot Since background <laughs> is
2: in linguistics.
1: um Paleography is an, a science of its own. Paleography is sort of the field of reading old books, old manuscripts, because there are so many different scribal hands. Dot and I talked a lot about hands. Um, and that basically means mm-hmm. like the style of the letter forms. There are many different prescribed styles of letter forms that you get in different regions and different periods. It's like if the cursive that you learned in school was iterated upon infinitely, and everybody used a different style of cursive, like that's <laughs> that's kind of what you deal with in illuminated or in uh, medieval manuscripts. Um, and then add on top of that the the language issues. I often say, like, I know enough Latin to get me into trouble. And I I think that that is a very accurate description of uh, what I'm working with. Like, I don't speak Latin, but I do know how to use a dictionary. (laughs) And I think it's that kind of meta skill that really helps when you're faced with a medieval manuscript in a really difficult hand in a different language. It's like, well, I can puzzle out most of this. There are tools on the internet to help me sort of fill in any blanks. There are indexes and uh, keys to different uh, abbreviations, because if there's one thing a medieval scribe liked, it's a Latin abbreviation. And yeah, so it's just it's reading in a very active sense in a way that people are not people generally don't read. So, you know, you look at a medieval manuscript um, and the Lydgate is a little bit easier because at least it's in some semblance of English that we recognize as such, that it's just a case of sort of unpuzzling the weird letter forms. But you go back even to the Hunterian Psalter, there are uh, abbreviations in Latin that like, I don't know what that is, but I do know where to find out what it is. So I think for textual scholars, uh, they might be a bit quicker at uh, reading these manuscripts sort of off the cuff but I as a material culture person for better or for worse uh, focus more on the material of the thing rather than what exactly it says so especially for things like the Lydgate and the Hunterian Psalter which are sort of formulaic like historians know what Lydgate is they know what a Psalter is like there's not going to be a lot of groundbreaking information in these books unlike like scientific treatises of the day where they they might have some recipe for something that nobody's ever seen before. And that proves that they actually did have this plant in this region at this time. Like that's not going to happen in a Psalter or (laughs) in Lidgate. Mm -hmm. So I am not terribly concerned about comprehending the text at a very deep level when I'm looking at this sort of thing. Um, Like Dot and I were talking about the word endings like that is a a useful thing to look at to see like if this book was intended for a woman reader or a male reader or for multiple readers, um, that that's a good little pointer for understanding more about the book. But again, that's not like I need to understand exactly what this sentence says.
2: I've always assumed that when one studies these things, it's not just it's been a surprise to learn that there are people who specialize in just the construction and just the materials and then the whole other group is about the content yeah you do
1: get some crossover um there are plenty of material Mm -hmm. culture people who are also textual people and vice versa but it kind of comes back to the modern concept of reading a book like when you sit down and read a book you don't like consider the binding for hours (laughs) like If it's a modern paperback, (laughs) it's a modern paperback. You just get right into the text. And that is the purpose of a book is to read. But when you look at uh, medieval manuscripts and early printed books um, and sort of books as objects, like it's beyond the text. It's this thing that is a container of the text, but it's so much more. And so, yeah, like you said, some people focus more on the container. Some people focus more on the text. There's obviously a Venn diagram where these things intersect, but yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: there's also knowing what the text is, mm. you know, which is itself valuable. And so, especially if it's a text that is well-known, if I know that this manuscript contains Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, I don't need to read the manuscript because I have lots of translations that I can get off the shelf if I need to know. I've also like comparing, you get an edition of the text and sort of comparing it to the text to sort of see where in the manuscript the text is. I just don't have the skill myself to sit down and like transcribe and translate. It's just a really specialized skill. And my <laughs> skill is like Allie looking at the book, you know, the structure of it and, and how it's been used and how it's been put together, which, and I it, love that you, that you said like, that's another way of reading. Like it, mm-hmm. and it is. Um, although I didn't, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. I like that.
1: It's It's funny, Lindsay, that you mm-hmm. say about, you know, I thought people were reading these things. I think that there's a lot of imposter syndrome in the field too. And like this sense that like, well, I'm not reading these things, but I bet everybody else is reading these things. I bet everybody else is better at this than I am. And Dot, <laughs> I really thought that you were just a Latin whiz and that you could dash off any of this stuff and be like, Oh yeah, this is that. Nope. And, and this says that. So, like, <laughs> It's very sort of personally. Please don't let anybody believe that ever. <laughs> no. We're all in it together. Yeah. Sorry if I
0: if I gave that impression <laughs> to anybody ever, that I know anything at all, <laughs>
2: you know. Do you have any more questions? Yeah. I'm
0: enjoying your questions, Lindsay.
2: You are. <laughs> yes. If there was any one manuscript in the world that you could get your hands on to spend time with, what would it be? Huh. That's a good
1: question. I don't know. It's It's one of those things like, if there was one book that I could touch, like right now, it would be the Gutenberg Bible. But that's only because I haven't touched one and I kind of want to check it off my bucket list. Like <laughs> it's it's not this any sense of I, I really want to study this. It's more of a, like, I want to say that I touched the Gutenberg Bible. That is yeah. totally <laughs> valid. Um, but manuscripts are all so different and so amazing. And I've gotten to to hang out with so many cool ones. And it just feels like anytime I go to a special collections, I find another one that I never knew about. That's just incredibly gorgeous. And like, I guess I would say I would go back to some of the ones that I've gotten to look at before, just because I know they exist. It's Mm -hmm. again, this is kind of how the sausage is made in libraries, but there's so many things that are not as discoverable as they could be um especially uh when applied to manuscripts when there are so many meta skills needed to accurately catalog a medieval manuscript um, including that paleography and that understanding of what this and that says about where it was made you know you you have a a catalog that just says medieval manuscript 24 leaves one illumination and it's like that could be literally anything (laughs) and that is what a lot of libraries have (laughs) Just because there aren't Mm -hmm. enough resources to get these things cataloged and findable in a way that scholars can actually use when they're not actually in the library and just pull this stuff up. It's a problem that is true of of many libraries that they just don't have the funding or the resources or um, the time, especially to do deep dives on these manuscripts, which might be like the fricking coolest thing that you've ever seen in your entire life, but you can't find it. So it may as well not exist. So I, I think that that's why I would go back to one of the the manuscripts I've seen in the past. And I, I can't remember what the name of this one is because when I saw it, it was at a Christie's auction and they were doing like the special showing of, of some incredible manuscripts collectors manuscripts that uh, I think he died and they were selling and um, these were like millions of dollars of manuscripts and they were stunning. And I think oh the one goodness. that I'm thinking of ended up at the Beinecke. I think it's the Beinecke. Um, but it was like this incredible illuminated French Psalter or not Psalter um, French chronicle of, of something. And I think it was, was early 1400s. And while it was French, the illumination looked very Dutch and it was just very refined um, and like really maximalist and just beautiful. Um, so I, I, like I said, I think it's at the Beinecke. I'm not sure what the shelf number is, and I'm not doing a great job of describing it very specifically, but it was bigger than the Hunterian Psalter, but not huge, and in a lot of ways, it reminded me of the Hunterian Psalter, but much later. So it, it was a, a beautiful example of like what a lot of money can get you if you invest in an illuminated manuscript.
2: Okay, last question. What is your all-time favorite little doodle or creature or monster you've ever encountered? Oh, that's another hard one. <laughs> in manuscript?
0: Um, hmm.
1: Oh, it's really difficult because they all have such big personalities and I love them all so much. They do. That's why I had to ask the question. (laughs) I told you she asked good good questions. Um, (laughs) hmm. I mean, like one of the earliest old things that I purchased when I was beginning to understand what an old book was and, and rare books and antiquarian books and all that was this leaf of a dutch book of hours that i found in an antique shop in texas and <laughs> and it was framed and it was it's just like it it doesn't have any illumination on it it's just these sort of um what's called pen work flourishes in red and blue and green i think yeah and green and it's just it's a page of a manuscript and it's pretty and it's small it's like about that big but it has Ooh. this on it <gasps>
0: So oh when she's God. saying it has this on it, she's holding her arm up, showing this tattoo on her arm. And I'm gonna have to get a photo of that I, yes. if that's okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll
1: send you a photo of the tattoo and a Put photo in the of show the manuscript notes. because this is missing okay. something. That's amazing. That is stunning. <laughs> Thank you. But what it's missing, like this this is decoration at the bottom of the page. And I thought like, oh, that would be a great tattoo. And so here it is. Um, I got it years ago. But in the actual manuscript, I think here there's a little face of a man with an elephant trunk (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like what is that doing there who is this guy it feels very personal to me that it's like my my little guy so it is it's pretty like and it's very small and you know we could talk about uh the the ethics of cutting books of hours up Um, That would be another podcast. But again, I bought this in Texas in like 2013 and I had no idea really what was happening.
0: Mm -hmm. Here is the little trunk guy. Oh, there he is. I see him. Oh, look at him. (laughs) Cute. Oh, yeah. And it is in Dutch, isn't it?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's from the Book of the Dead. Um, And like it has this on the back too. This is really where Mm -hmm. the, the party's at. Yeah. So it's like it's really pretty. It has this nice rubricated initial in, in blue and green um, that sort of puzzle piece mm-hmm. look um, and lots of pen work flourishes. And then at the very bottom is this more elaborate pen work flourish with a little guy with an elephant trunk. It's just, it's weird. And I love him. And I, I love that sort of thing. I think like that's my, one of my favorite genres of marginal weirdo guys is a marginal weirdo guy who is in an otherwise earnest decoration (laughs) where like you have this beautiful acanthus leaf or like some sort of gorgeous ornamental thing. And then there's just a weird little guy and it's like, what is that? (laughs)
2: Oh, that was wonderful. Thank you for showing us that.
1: Yeah. There's another one in a university of Edinburgh manuscript where it's um, like I was saying, like among this amazing decoration and like all of these leaves Um, and there's a little man who just, he's just a little man, but he's like trimming
2: at the leaves (laughs) in the margins. And I just, I love that. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you plan to add any more tattoos? Oh, yes. You've
1: found. Yeah. I I have a lot of book tattoos. I'm sure I will be getting many more book tattoos in the future.
0: (laughs) Very cool.
2: That's very cool. We need more
0: book tattoos. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, that's all I can think of.
0: Those were very good
2: questions.
0: I'm glad that you took the time to talk to us. And thank you so much. This was really fun. It was. Um, It was. Yeah. And it was fun to learn more about these manuscripts and also to learn more about you. you. thank you. I can't wait to hear everybody else talk
1: about manuscripts, too.
0: I am so excited. I'm so excited. I don't want to name names, (laughs) but... But I'm really excited about some of the people. (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm excited about all the people we're going to be talking talking to, you know. And I actually hope um, I'm going to start because I haven't even announced it yet publicly. Mm -hmm. But what I really hope is that I'll announce it and then people will volunteer or will say people that they want to talk. And so because right now it's sort of a small list, but, you know, getting more. Mm -hmm. All right. So we're going to go and... Uh, I will, I will talk to you both later. I'm sure. Awesome. It was really nice
2: to meet you, Allie. Yeah, it was nice to meet you too, Lindsay.
0: Thank you for listening to our conversation with Allie. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating or a review. We appreciate it. And we'll be back again soon with another conversation about manuscripts and why we love them.